In some ways, marketing a book for adults is easy. Most of the time, the person reading the book is also the person buying the book. So as long as you can convince that person to give your book a try, they become a customer. Children's books are a different animal. Kids don't have money. And when they do, they rarely spend it on books. <laughs> and typically, for most children, the book purchasing decisions are made by the adults in their lives. Parents, librarians, teachers, grandparents, even aunts and uncles. So marketing strategies that work well for adults don't work for children's books. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. In some cases, they're even illegal. The amount of data you can collect on a child under 13 in the United States is severely limited. We're not big on privacy laws over here, except when it comes to children. So you have to be careful. So while adults will purchase hundreds of ebooks on their Kindles, children prefer to read good old fashioned paper. The kids these days they just don't buy the new gadgets like their high tech parents. So how do you successfully market your books to children and your children's books to adults in today's world of online everything? We'll find out in this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest running book marketing podcast in the world. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr., CEO of Author Media, and this is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and make a difference with writing worth talking about. And we have a guest on the show today who has mastered the art of self-publishing and marketing her children's books. She is an international best-selling author, and her time travel adventure, The Secret Lake, has sold over half a million copies, just in English. It's also been translated into 10 languages. And she has successfully making a living as an indie children's author, which means she has access to her own marketing data. So when she says something works, it actually works. Karen Ingalls, welcome to the Novel Marketing Podcast. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. And what a fantastic introduction that was. <laughs> so I'm curious about your story, because you're living the dream for a lot of children's authors being able to make a full-time living writing children's books and without having to go through a publisher. So tell us how you got started. Well, I actually started fairly late on. I was a business writing consultant for many years, but I've always written. And it was when the children were little, reading books to them, that I thought, oh, that one's good. That one's not so good. And I, and I got inspired. I had some time on my hands, which is when I started penning some rhyming picture books. And I then got the inspiration for The Secret Lake, sort of during that period as well, went to visit a friend who just moved into the communal gardens of Notting Hill. They'd bought an apartment that backed onto those communal gardens. And it was walking out there and seeing all the children playing in these very safe space with surrounded by these big Victorian houses. I just got this moment where I thought, my goodness, wouldn't it be magical if they could meet the children who lived and played here a 100 years ago? So that's how the first of my longer non-picture book writing projects started or where it came from. And it was very much, a you know, a story from my heart. And one thing I would say is it was a project I believed in, but it took a long, long time for it to take off. And in fact, it, I sent it out back in the very early days to traditional publishers. That's how long ago it was. It was in it, before the days of internet or anything and waited six weeks, got the letters back, the rejection letters saying it was the wrong length for their list. It was too traditional. Children are looking for something more modern, which was precisely the reason I'd written it was I thought there aren't enough traditional adventure stories around. 
I want to jump in right there because this is a bugaboo of mine. I 100% agree. We buy hundreds of children's books. I have three children, five and under, and my wife has been collecting children's books since before we got married. <laughs> she has a real passion for children's books. And we buy as many as half of our books are out of print older books because we don't like the modern stuff. It's so preachy. It's like we don't want to read A is for Activists. We want to read Goodnight Moon. And the older, more traditional adventure stories, our kids love those. I know, I know. And I can't believe there are enough of these around. And, and this was quite a while back. It felt that everything was a bit too modern. So anyway, after a few rejections... Ugh, the kids were getting a bit older, so I was going to be going back to work. I just shoved it in a box in my office here, and it stayed there for, I want to say, 10 years, pretty much. And I used to look at the box and think, oh, what a shame. No one's ever going to hear that story about the secret lake. <laughs> but I had a sabbatical from my consulting job in 2010. And when I pulled the story out, I had a year off and read through it. I thought, this is good. And yes, it needs a bit of editing. And I did some editing with a work colleague who's also a huge reader and had kids. And I was about to send it out to, I, I, I got over here, we have something called the Writers and Artists Yearbook. And I was looking through that or, or going online to get the latest version, because by then, of course, the internet was all around. And suddenly started seeing things about self-publishing. Now, way back, I had investigated, is there any way I can publish these books myself? And of course, immediately decided discovered that you had to order about 2,000 in order to get any kind of unit cost that would make any sense. So that I had to forget about that. But suddenly I was seeing all this information about self-publishing and something called Create Space. And so I started investigating it. And the more I understood, and I noticed lots of people were doing it in the States, not many over here in the UK, certainly no children's authors. But Joanna Penn, who was in Australia at the time, she was self-publishing. And I thought, well, she's English, but she, that was a bit confusing. She was over in Australia, but I couldn't quite work that one out. But anyway, so I was I started to go into the Create Space community and start asking questions. And I decided quite quickly, actually, you know what? I like the idea that I can do this myself. I know some of you are probably Googling CreateSpace because you're like, how many is CreateSpace? You're not able to find it. So CreateSpace is now called Amazon KDP Print. Amazon bought them a million years ago and then ran them as their own brand for a while and then rolled them in. And so Amazon KDP Print is it's the same thing as CreateSpace, just with a new name. And so what is different with CreateSpace slash Amazon KDP Print and what Karen looked at initially we actually have a whole episode on this. It's print-on-demand versus offset printing. So with offset printing, you have to do at least 2,000 copies, and really it's at 5,000 or 10,000 that the, the unit cost really gets where you want it to be. With print-on-demand, the unit cost is the same regardless of how many units you order because they're printed on demand. And the other advantage of print-on-demand is that they can print it in other countries really easily. And so you can sell throughout the English world without having to worry too much about shipping and taxes and tariffs because it's technically a book printed in Australia. <laughs> it's not a book printed in the UK and flown to Australia. They send the digital file to a printer and the one person in Australia who orders a copy today gets one copy printed and mailed to them directly. 
Yeah. So you don't have to have a garage full of books, which was the only option previously. That's where it all started. And I self-published The Secret Lake in 2011, but it was by no means an overnight success. It was in the sense that Kindle was in its very early days. And after I went through goodness knows how many hours trying to format it for Moby, and again, there were no tools in those days, I did finally get it up on the Kindle just before Christmas of 2012. And it did sell about like 50 or 60 copies on Christmas Day. And I thought, oh, who are all these people buying this book? And it was because there was nobody doing it. Do you know what I mean? Particularly for children's books. But after that, there was a sort of lull, really, because from a marketing perspective, even though the book's up on Amazon, no one's going to find it. There was no way you could advertise. And so it was a slow burn in the early days for several years. And it was all to do with going into schools, making contact with schools and slowly building my brand that way. So you're in a classic place right now. You've got your book. It's on Amazon. Your phone number is in the phone book, but nobody's calling. Nobody's buying. (laughs) (laughs) And so you could talk about it on Twitter and things, but I quickly realized that the people on Twitter were not kids. Thank God. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Mind you, some of them are like kids. But um, I quickly realized that I was going to have to start local. So I started started with an event in my local library whom I befriended. And I still give this advice today because I get asked a lot about how do I market my children's book? Because even with online advertising, it's still hard. And what I do say is start to establish your brand locally, because that gives you social stuff for your website, for Twitter that you can share for Instagram these days on your Facebook page, images of what it is you've been doing, whether that's doing an event at your local library whether you're in your local bookshop, selling books to your local bookseller. So all those sorts of things are valuable, but they were very valuable back in the day. And I also printed off flyers with the front cover of The Secret Lake and went round to my local cafes where I knew parents took their kids and put them up in the window and paid whatever it was, a small amount each week for it to be there to say, this book is available at the local library and in the local bookshops. So you're supporting your local community. I also contacted the local press to let them know that the book had a local connection because the front cover of The Secret Lake is inspired by a a pond called Still Pond in Richmond Park, close to where we live. And then I also spoke to magazines in Notting Hill because there was a Notting Hill collection. And so I was doing that sort of traditional media thing. Now, I was doing all that when the book first came out, but I still say to children's authors today, still do all of that traditional stuff. Definitely make contact with your schools and go in because it's word of mouth, actually. And what happens if the children like your books, they'll tell other children about about it. Parents will tell each other about it. Teachers and librarians will share the information. And it is a slow burn. But things like those very early events as well, such as doing an event at your local library for free, you can hopefully speak to people and encourage them and ask if they'd be very kind and leave a review for you. Because we know now that if you're advertising on Amazon, the problem is to try and have some reviews up there. So a lot of that old school stuff hasn't changed and it's still important now. And in fact, I was doing an event last night. It it was a free event I did for a school that my sons went to talking actually about children's publishing. It's all sort of good PR to keep your brand out there. And this is one of the areas where children's books and adult books are actually really similar. Several hundred, maybe even the first 500 to 1,000 copies, you have to sell one-on-one, basically, or like one on small groups, and you're doing it in person. 
And the benefit of sales is that it forces you to talk with your readers. <laughs> and this is beneficial for adults, right? Because you're talking with the actual readers. But it's also beneficial is for children's books because you do an event at the school. You're interacting with the faculty and the staff at the school, the decision makers. But you're also interacting with the children. And you're learning how do I talk about this book in a way that makes it interesting to people? Because you can see on people's faces whether they're interested or not, right? You talk to somebody and they're like, ooh, where do I buy it? And they're like pulling out their phone, they're ordering a copy, or their eyes are glazing over. And you start to learn, oh, they don't care about the local angle. <laughs> you have to sell it to them some different way. Yeah. And again, I say to people, if you're just starting out and you've got to build your confidence, offer a couple of free events. I mean, as a rule, I wouldn't say once you're established and you're getting going, you should be charged for your events. But when you when it's your first book to get your confidence up and you say that I, I can offer a free event if, if in return you'll allow me to send home slips if in case they want to order. Now, I had a school, a, a quite a big, wealthy private school that's not far from where I live, who said, oh, yes, we'd love you to come in. I thought, great. But they said, but well, you can't sell any books. And I thought, oh, not so good. But then I thought, actually, I'm going to go and do it anyway, because it's good for my <laughs> confidence. But she said, oh, and can you do this group, this group, this group and this group? And you'll laugh now. But because the school is literally within walking distance of where I live, they wanted me to go in six times. And I went into the library with these different year groups. But what was absolutely brilliant about it was it taught me what did and didn't work in terms of presenting to the children. Because I realised after the first couple, hang on, I'm going on for too long there. I need to break that up and ask them questions. And so it was actually, it did me a huge favour um, because, you know, again, so that all that early stuff will help you hone your skills for, um, you know, when you're seeing more and more people and doing more events and, and that will give you a good name. Yeah. I completely agree. I really believe in speaking for free when you're first getting started. And basically, you start charging once you're doing too many free events. You become too in demand and you're starting to get tired and you're like, oh, I don't want to go speak again. Then you start charging because it does. The only way to really learn public speaking is to publicly speak, right? Like you can read books, but the books, I've read a lot of books on public speaking. You know what they all talk about? practice. It's like, that's the secret, right? You know what a good speech is, but knowing what a good speech is and actually delivering a good speech that connects with an audience takes practice. And it also takes getting to know the audience and what resonates with them. And so this is really foundational. Things that you're learning, giving the same talk at the school eight times, you end up using later on as you do marketing things, right? When you, because now you're, and we'll get to all the stuff you're doing now, but, uh, but the reason I want to belabor this early stuff is that this laid the foundation because knowing how to buy an Amazon ad or a Facebook ad, that's the easy part. The tricky part is knowing what to put in the text to make people want to buy the book, right? You've got five words, 10 words. How do you describe the book in a way that's compelling that makes people interested and you can find that out through testing online, but it's expensive. You know, it's way cheaper to talk to actual readers. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, one thing I would say on the free event thing is you have to be a bit careful because if you have lots of authors doing lots of free events, then it makes other authors, it can make it feel awkward if people are charging. So there is this sort of unspoken rule, which is only do it when you're starting out. Don't make a big habit of it, if you see what I mean, because there's a huge amount of work involved in school events because the emails that go back and forth and changing their minds, the getting the book orders and how well you do by the way, 
really does depend on how engaged the person you're dealing with and how organized they are. So you'll have some school offices and, and teachers who are very on the ball and others who aren't. And that, and that often is the determiner of how many books you're likely to sell at the end of the day, assuming you have a good book, plus also the quality of your own marketing material you provide to them, which I do to make it as simple as possible for them to promote my book to the parents. Yeah. So what's your approach? Because I imagine a lot of people listening, like, what is this institution? When It's kind of like what one American president said, when you call Europe, who answers the phone? <laughs> so all you do is identify schools fairly close to you in the correct age group. And then what I tend to do is start off by calling to try to get the name of the literacy coordinator. And that sometimes is a teacher and sometimes it's a librarian. It just depends. Other times you'll speak to a lady in the office who won't let you go beyond. Everything has to go to that person. You know, just ex expect anything. And what I also do is I tailor my emails to include a couple of thumbnails, not too much information, but some thumbnails just to make it look interesting with the book cover or whatever. And follow up with a phone call. And I say this, I do have a nonfiction book on how to self-publish and market a children's book. And there's a lot of disappointment. There's a lot of times they don't get back to you or they say they're going to and then they don't. And then you follow up and they say, oh, that teacher left last week <laughs> you know, or, or whatever. And over the years, I've kind of realized not to take it too personally because actually they're just all incredibly busy. And it's not that they're out to not want you to come in. They've just got so many things going on. So you have to have a bit of a thick skin doing all of this. But if, you, if you're if you at it consistently and you target correctly, make sure, obviously, it's a very easy to follow email with an attachment, but an attractive enough body to it, setting out what you can offer. That's how I would do it. And you have to realize what they want. They're not in the business of booking authors. They don't care about you, right? They're, they're in the business of educating children, and so you need to convince them that you're going to make their job of educating children easier and that you're going to be easy to work with, right? They don't want a prima donna, somebody who's really complicated, has lots of demands, but they do want to spice it up. And having a real author come and speak is the sort of thing that makes the school look good in the eyes of parents, right? They do care about that sort of thing, but you have to realize that they have a lot of other things going on. They have a lot of people making demands. Typically, and, and it depends on the school and the structure, but most organizations, the people doing the actual work and the people making purchasing decisions are not the same people. So that second grade teacher doesn't necessarily have the authority on her own to say, I'm going to spend $50 or 50 approvals and signatures from their three different bosses. And once you're free, suddenly the, all of that complexity is removed. And, and so you have to think about that in terms of your strategy. There are certain times of year, and I don't know when they are in the States, where they have the budget for the next year. And I know that's sort of a good time to be in contact with them. I do also know of authors, I think over in the States, one in particular, I've heard talk about how he knows the school has a budget restrictions. He will try and do an agreement with them whereby he will do a reduced budget in return for a certain number of books sold at a discounted price. Now, that's more possible to do when you're, you've got huge stocks of your book that you've printed up front and had shipped from China, which I know there is a whole group of authors, children's authors, certainly in the States, which do do that. I don't do that. And hats off to them, the ones who do. So that makes that sort of deal a bit easier because you can, you know, 
you've got a big stock to say, look, as long as you buy 100 books, we can adjust the price of my visit accordingly, if you see what I mean. And I know authors here in the States that do that, especially with private schools. Be like, look, the book's normally $15, but you know they're buying them bulk at 3 or $4 a copy. And that's how the traditional publishing model works, I think. that A lot of them, they do these hugely discounted books going into schools. A lot of authors, as we know, are looking towards the direct selling model now in the, you know, in the last six year or so. And I think 2023, that's going to increase. And it is something I'm looking at. I've had two orders going out to the States, which I've had drop shipped, so printed over there by Ingram and just directly delivered to the schools. I I was able to make the sums work because of the volume of the orders. But yes, suddenly I was twigging this in the last couple of years that the traditional publishers do make their books incredibly cheap and that does get them into the hands of the children. Right. And and with your sales, I think you actually should consider offset printing and working with a fulfillment company to source those books into Amazon and into the other places because you are moving enough units where you can get your cost per copy down. So for most authors, offset printing is a mistake because they end up with a garage full of books. But let's say you're selling 100 books every month and you have to do that 2000 book order. That's only 20 months to sell through that order. And if you work with a fulfillment company, then those 2000 books aren't in your garage. They're in a fulfillment company's garage. And they're the ones who are putting the books in boxes and mailing them to the customers. And all of that can be done inside of the margins that you're saving potentially with getting your book printed print on demand especially if it's a full color picture book full color picture books are brutal on the cost per unit for print on demand oh yes yeah so what I do over here in the UK, because I realised, because when The Secret Lake really started to take off after 2018, it started off here and then it snowballed into the US. And I thought they're going to start walking into UK bookshops and asking for it. And of course, when it was listed with Ingram, Spa, the delivery time was quite long, you know, sort of taking two weeks. And it's never been a very satisfactory setup. They can get them in, but they can't get them in a couple of days. And I realised I needed to have the book in stock with our main wholesaler over here which is called gardeners so i started doing offset printing well actually i think they still use digital printers but i started off with 500 and for a few runs and then i did one big one of 2000 with a company called clays over here in the uk they print for a lot of traditional publishers and and they have an arrangement where they will then supply into gardeners on a sort of call-off basis and that's worked for those books so that bookshops can get them within 24 hours as they can with anything else um and yes you know i've thought about the fact that i ought to be doing something similar in the states in terms of getting books shipped across and the fulfillment thing at the moment i i'm not doing that but i am doing these bulk orders now for schools where i can you know i can get a better price from ingram for those larger orders but it's on the to-do list as it were if you're curious about offset printing in the states i do encourage you to listen to my episode that talks about it but i'll give you a quick hot tip and that is go to your local offset printer so there's the big national ones and they're not going to care about you because you're a small fry but every local region in the states has a major post office and around that post office is a 
printing companies that print all of the wonderful junk mail that you get. <laughs> but those machines that print junk mail in catalogs are very capable of printing a regular book and they enjoy working with authors, right? Nobody as a child's like, you know what I want to do when I grow up? I want to be a junk mail printer, right? They want to be a book printer. <laughs> and they often will bend over backwards. Yeah. It, it, most of the authors that I've talked with who've done this and they found a local printer to work with, they found it, it was really easy. They actually were interacting with a, the same person every time they would call. There's a the phone would get answered by the same person and they would get a relationship who'd help educate them and train them and really work with them and accommodate them. And so if you're in the States, obviously, Karen, for you, that's not going to work for you working with one of the big national yeah, ones, yeah. probably the better. But if you live in, you know, Lubbock, Texas, you're like, Lubbock, Texas, there's not any Texas. Actually, you might be surprised. You go to the major Lubbock, Texas post office, do a Google map search for printers real near that post office. And you'll find, oh, there are a bunch of printers, right? Because Guess what people in Lubbock, Texas get? Direct mail. And it saves money to print the mail close and, and mail it than to do it from some faraway place. Okay, so let's go back to your story. So you're you're grinding away, selling your book in ones and twos, and really hustling. So you're hustling your book, but it is not taken off. You're now selling hundreds of copies, maybe thousands of copies, but you're not into the tens of thousands or millions. So between 2011 and 2018, by that time I had no mean feat, actually, when I look back at it. I'd sold about 7,000 copies by then through a combination of school visits, mostly school visits, some on Amazon, but not huge numbers by any stretch, and through local bookshop, uh, Waterstones over here, which is a sort of a big chain. I'd been into most of my local Waterstones and had book signings there, where sometimes I would sell you know, anywhere between sort of 20, and 80 books depending on how many people came along so the big game changer though came when amazon opened up advertising to authors as soon as there was a whiff that we could advertise i was in there trying to find out how to do it and i didn't have many reviews of the book by that stage because of course children's reviews come much slower and most of the books I was selling were at events. So I wasn't selling them on Amazon. So there wouldn't have been a reason for the, somebody to take the book home after school and then say, oh, can we go and put a review on Amazon, if you see what I mean? To make that work, if you're hustling like that, it's all about the email list because you got to follow up and really pester people in a nice way. What I do have in the back of my books, however they're sold and have done right from the word go, was a, a very nice message saying, you know, if you enjoyed this book, it would mean a lot to me if you could take a moment to leave a, a short review on Amazon or your preferred online store. I try to sort of nudge the word Amazon in there, but or your preferred online store. <laughs> The very sort of slow build up there. It started to take off for a while, and I'm now getting a bit fuzzy here, but I do remember 2018 was when finally I could get onto Amazon UK advertising. And so, whereas I think Kindle Direct Publishing, maybe they'd allowed us to advertise from the end of 2016 or 17, I can't remember which, you couldn't still advertise in the UK. And then I found a workaround to get into advertising here through Advantage in 2018, February. And I somehow had a feeling that because the book is set in the UK, that somehow it would have an effect. And, and it certainly did. I literally, the moment those ads started to appear, I saw the book sales starting to go up. But I was also looking at that time at changing the cover. And I was in this dilemma. I thought, oh, my God, if I change the book cover over now, they're going to take them all off sale because that's what they used to do in the olden days, didn't they? I don't know if you remember that. You change the book cover, it would all go off. But actually, they changed it over really quickly. And then that helped again. And then so the UK sales really started to take off. 
And, and let, let me jump in here, actually, because this is one of the advantages that indie authors have over traditionally published authors. So the reason why the books would go off sale is often if you're traditionally published and you're only offsetting, because traditional publishers, as a general rule, the medium and big ones don't print on demand because the margins aren't there. It takes time to order offset copies. You order 100,000 copies from China, it's going to take months <laughs> between when you place the order and when they show up. And so you're trying to time it. You're like, okay, we're selling you know, 100 copies a week and we've got 3,000 copies left in the warehouse. Maybe we can do it. And there's a gap. And, and so it's really difficult and it's a real hassle to make changes to the cover. On the other hand, if you're indie, you can swap out the cover for the ebook. Just flip, flip. It's very easy to make the change. And for print on demand, also relatively trivial to, to make the change because each book is printed on demand, which allows you to experiment with different covers. And for many books that are struggling to sell, it's because of either the cover is not doing the heavy lifting or the way the book is described is not doing the heavy lifting. A lot of authors think it's the writing, but the writing hasn't had a chance to prove itself if people aren't getting past the cover in the blurb, right? They're not judging it by the writing. And more often than not, your very first book, especially if you're indie, the cover is not great because you don't know about covers. You don't know about publishing. You're learning things. You're figuring things out. And it, being willing to put that first cover that you love, right? The reason why you love it is you are really involved in the design process. I'm not talking about you, Karen. I'm talking about like the typical author. Um, they're really involved with the design process and it's their baby. But then when you start advertising, you start seeing, oh, wow, this cover's not working. You start experimenting with other covers and finding, wow, this other cover's got three times the clicks. <laughs> Being able to make those kinds of tweaks, three times the clicks is the difference between the ads paying for themselves and not paying for themselves. That's a big difference and not at all uncommon when you find the right cover for your audience, right? Once you put the right bait on the hook, suddenly you're catching fish like crazy. And then the other thing to take into account is just the fact that covers change over time. So by the time I was changing the cover for The Secret Lake, even though it was well received when it first came out and Waterstone said, oh, gosh, this doesn't look self-published, you know, by the time 2018 came around, I was already, I've been already thinking for the last six months, oh, it's starting to look a little bit old fashioned, if you know what I mean. So it was definitely ripe for updating. And that's something to keep in mind. Styles change. And even for a classic book, right? Because this is a classic story. It's not a modern story. And, and I, I want everyone to hear this because I know a lot of people are wanting to write the classic kind of story. But just because you're writing a classic kind of story doesn't mean you have an old-fashioned kind of book cover. <laughs> you, you want a book cover that conveys accurately how fun and interesting the book is. And the way that you do that will have to shift over time. And you'll notice this with the classics, right? Narnia is on, I don't know, it's fourth or fifth cover at this point. And that change in the packaging is important for sales. Yeah, exactly. So that was 2018. But I remember being at London Book Fair, actually talking to self-publishing formula. I was being interviewed and saying, oh, the sales seem to be taking off. And so anyway, they took off very, very strongly that summer in the UK. And then slowly, but surely, they started to take off in the States. And, and I remember forever having only 45 reviews and thinking, gosh, come on, somebody leave some more reviews. And then slowly, they just started to creep up. And I've never, ever, 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 put the secret lake free i've never done a giveaway on the ebook or anything i've never paid for a review all of the reviews it has and it has a lot of reviews now 
are all organic. They are based on the story. And so I have had this discussion with a lot of people about, well, how do you manage to sell so many books? And I do have to say the story sells the book, really, because I think children read the story and love it. And it also appeals to a lot of adults and they talk about it and tell their friends. So that also definitely helps. That It was getting those reviews, you know, to kick up, but also then it starts to self-fulfill. But it was being able to make it discoverable had reached the point where I could only hand sell so many of my books. But I think as like we were saying earlier on, just because advertising is available to you now, don't think that that's all you should be doing. You should most definitely be doing this local, building your brand gradually. Word of mouth will mean a lot. It will help with your early reviews. It will help long term. And you can do things, little things, which you might think, well, it that didn't earn me much money, but it, it can often lead to something else. I mean, it was the 50th anniversary of the World Cup and they were doing a sort of parents and dads football tournament down in our village and, and they wanted people to hire tables to go along there. And I thought, oh, I'll go down because this Eek the Runaway Alien is about an alien who runs away from space to earth because he's mad about soccer and the World Cup's on. And I thought, well, I'll go down there and I'll take a table for Eek. Now, I was there all day and I probably sold 30 books some of Eek, some of The Secret Lake. And my table cost me £15. So my hourly rate for profit (laughs) was extremely low. But actually, two things happened. One, there was a famous football commentator who was very well known during the World Cup. And he was there comparing. And I got a photo of him with me and Eek. And that went up on my social media. So that was one thing. I was able to use that in various sort of social media situations. But also I got a letter a few days later from a parent saying, my daughter bought a copy of your book, The Secret Lake, from you at that event. And she so loves it. We're asking the school if you could come and do an event. And I subsequently got a booking for 350 quid to go and do a whole World Book Day event there. So a lot of these little things... And I would still say today, if there was a relevant event locally like that, I would still go and do it. This example is a perfect example of the kind of benefits that come from that hand selling. You get far more benefits per book sold when you're doing it in person because you're making that personal connection and that relationship. And that can lead to really good things. And I should point out, right, so you talked about how, you know, you had 45 ratings. Your book, The Secret Lake, now has over 16,000 ratings. (laughs) <laughs> ratings and reviews. And I want to point this out because a lot of people get advertising and marketing mixed up. Marketing is the whole shebang. It's all the things that you're doing to promote the books, the branding. Advertising is specifically money that you're spending to put your book in front of people. And Karen, you spent your own money to advertise this book, right? So there was some cost there and the risk. And for a lot of authors, they advertise and they spend you know $1,000 advertising and they make $500 back or $200 back. And they're like, I'm losing money. And they quit. Or sometimes they keep going. It's like, I, I just want this book to sell and I don't care if it makes money. But if you want to get to 16,000 reviews and millions of copies sold, you have to be able to profitably advertise. So I'm tying back to that early, those early days, right? Presenting to the, the students, that is key. That's what gives you the edge over the other authors who didn't do that and didn't spend that time listening to their customers to know how to present the book in a way that makes people want to read it. 
Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, advertising, it's a whole learning curve in itself. You know, we all went through the learning curve in the olden days of how to format a book for, you know, before all those wonderful tools came along. And then the next thing is we suddenly need to become experts in ACOS and and this sort of thing. And actually what's challenging for a lot of children's authors is that beyond the fact that we're not promoting to our audience directly is that in selling in print a lot of the webinars and everything around to do with how you know whether you're making profitable ads were all focused around ebooks so I had to go and work out my own actually what is my ACOS for a print book because it's completely different because you can't just say it's seven anything below 70% you're making a profit you have to take into account you know what's your the print cost so I have an equation it's something like the print cost divided by the royalty or something and you come up with a percentage which I could then for each book have a spreadsheet that I had to keep an eye on to understand when my book is and isn't at break-even point, if you see what I mean, which was like that's sort of jumping to something a little bit technical there. But it's just that you're constantly having to learn new things and be willing to spend time doing that sort of thing. And I talk about all of that, by the way, in my book on self-publishing children's books. And we'll have a link to that book on self-publishing children's books in the show notes. If you're wanting to go indie with your children's book, I highly recommend checking this book out. The most cost-effective education you'll ever get for your publishing career is to just buy books on publishing. I refer to my own book quite often. There's so much to remember. Yeah. <laughs> and and I should point out, ACOS stands for Average Cost of Sales, I believe. It's one of the metrics that you get once you start advertising on Amazon. If you're wanting to learn more about Amazon advertising, we have some episodes on it uh, that we'll link to in the show notes. And every single person I've talked to who is successful at advertising gets a little technical (laughs) you got to get a little technical right you have to be willing to dig into the numbers to do it well if you're happy to lose money you'll eventually lose all your money and that's not the path to success if you're doing this right the money that you're sending out is bringing back more money so you can send out more money and you've got this flywheel that gets you to 16,000 ratings. And if you're losing money with your advertising, you got to make some changes. It may be the cover, it may be the blurb, it may be the book's just not the right fit for your market and you need to write another book. And you learn all of that because you get this really great data. It's very sobering at first, but the data is really, really helpful and it can help you make informed decisions. And nothing really gives you as good of data is buying your own ads on Amazon because everything is right there on platform. I mean, one thing I would also say about in terms of making sure you have a good story, which sort of is going back to basics, really. I used in those early days something called the Writer's Advice Centre for Children's Books. And so it's not an agent. They were actually a manuscript appraisal freelance service. And it was run by the ex-head reader for Puffin UK, which is Penguin Children's. And I'd done a course with her. I'd gone on a day course at her house on writing for children. And then a few years later, I said to her, oh, I've got this manuscript I've written. Do you remember me? And sent it to her. And, and her appraisal service sent me a report back. And I do have a blog post about this somewhere on my site telling me, look, this is a great story, but you need to start it differently. And you know, to all the things I'd done wrong. And it's fantastic because I went through a lot of changes to what I thought was my original story in order to come to the final draft of The Secret Lake that eventually has done so well. And so no matter how good your blurb is and no matter how good your cover is, if the actual story hasn't got the heart that's going to get children engaged, then you're doing things back to front. What I say to people now is, you know, you've written your manuscript, Put it to one side, 
come back to it. When you read it through after two weeks, when are your eyes glazing over? You'll know when things aren't working and they need fixing. Do as much as you can to get it how you think it is. And then what you need to do is try and get some children you don't know and maybe a couple of teachers or librarians to read it. And I've done this with some of my subsequent books. A really simple questionnaire to say, did you enjoy it? How many would you give it out of 10 or whatever? Were there any bits you did enjoy, any bits you didn't understand or you got bored? And you don't want them to write you an essay because they're not going to do that. But if you make it really easy for them to give you high-level feedback... You could do some of that without having to pay somebody to start with. And they'll probably be picking out things that in your heart of hearts you knew weren't really working anyway, and that you've just got to go back and have another go at it, so to speak. And that's why I would say do not hire an illustrator. Don't pay for any illustrations to be done until you've done a a mock-up of your book. I think I've got it in, in my book on how to do this simply with some paper. Get the story mapped out so you know where the pages are going to turn and potentially what illustrations would go there. Because even without the illustrations, if you read a lot, you'll know when you want the page to turn and that will inform where the images go. But it, even if you do stickman things, you can say to a parent, look, you know, can you try this out on your child or let me know what you think if these pictures were here, to, just to get the sense that it's working. Because as you say, if the kids aren't going to be engaged with the story, you don't want to spend a lot of money paying an illustrator to come up with a load of illustrations that they're going to, get, they're going to be changed because the story doesn't work. Yeah. Because there's tricks that teachers do to make a book more interesting for children to get through the boring bits, right? And you start adding voices and you start doing all this drama. And that's great normally. But if you're doing it to try to test the script, you actually don't want to do those things because you want to notice where you're feeling, man, I really got to spice this page up because I'm losing the kids. They're like, okay, put a note on that page. Go fix it, right? That page now needs to become the most interesting page. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So for somebody who has got a children's book, that they have finished writing, but they haven't done anything with it yet. It's not published. And they're looking at this kind of journey ahead of them. And they're like, I don't know, you know, what to do next or feeling overwhelmed. What kind of encouragement would you have for them? Well, I would, well, the first thing I would do is they've just finished it is obviously put it in a drawer for a couple of weeks and then come back and read it and be very honest with yourself there. And, and by the way, when they've written this book, make sure you know what target age group it's for, because that's one of the biggest mistakes a lot of people will make when they think they're going to write a children's book. It's really important knowing which age group, because the target age of your reader will inform the length of the book, how many and whether there are any illustrations, the theme, the use of language, the complexity of the plot, the age of the characters, that all varies. So I'm assuming that will have been done already and you would have read lots of books in what you think your target age group is. So let's assume you've done all that, you've written your story, you've put it in a drawer for a few weeks, you've got it out and you're as happy as you can be. I think the next thing you want to do is try it. I don't know if you've got a local librarian or a local children's bookseller or a teacher and maybe somebody with kids, ideally who don't know you, so you're, you know, it's just less embarrassing in, get them to read it and get some initial feedback and from a couple of children's authors of course as well but sometimes if you know somebody it's difficult for them to be honest with you children will be very honest if they don't like it even if they know you they may be very honest just the fact that your grandma doesn't mean they're going to be nice yes actually (laughs) they probably will be but maybe the parent wouldn't let them be (laughs) maybe the parent would say no 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 you can't say that just say oh it was a little bit boring but that's probably what i would do just to do that and then if ideally you want to give it to a 
professional editor to then do the copy editing, that's that kind of thing. And you can get those. Or in the UK, I would certainly look at Writer's Advice Centre for Children's Books. Otherwise, there are obviously online places like Readsy or ask other children's authors who they've used. You do need somebody who's experienced in editing children's books, not not grown-up books, if you know what I mean. I am in the process right now of buying How to Self-Publish and Market a Children's Book by Karen P. Ingalls. Second edition, I hope. <laughs> yes, second edition. And the, she does the Joanna Penn trick. You have a pen name for your nonfiction to keep it separate from your fiction. So you're Karen Ingalls for your fiction and you're Karen P. Ingalls for your nonfiction, which is the way to do it. In general, I'm not a big fan of pen names when they're very different because it creates a lot of marketing confusion. Well, we will have links to Karen's book, both the book for children and the book for adults, as well as to her website. I really encourage you to check out her stuff. She's one of the most successful children's book authors in terms of units sold. She's doing really well in the States, despite the fact she doesn't live here. So she's the one to learn from. Check out her stuff. Again, we'll have links in the show notes at authormedia.com. Karen Ingalls, thank you so much for joining us today on the Novel Marketing Podcast. Well, my pleasure. And thank you very much for having me. I'd like to give a special thanks to the new patrons who joined in the month of February. Dr. Joelle Sewell, Jen Black, Alicia Worth, Lexi Delorme, Kez Sharo, Suzanne Bratcher, and Tanner Scott. Thank you so much for helping keep this podcast on the air. I really appreciate your financial support. The Novel Marketing Podcast is a production of Author Media. Our guest today is Karen Ingalls. The producer is Lori Christine. This episode's audio was edited by John Sugar and William Umstadt. The blog post version is crafted by Shauna Lettler. And to read that blog version, go to authormedia.com slash 360. And of course, I'm Thomas Umstadt Jr. saying thank you for listening and live long and prosper.